Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And it as we pray, remain standing. Lord God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, you have brought us in safety to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power. Keep us from falling into sin. Enable us to overcome the trials of the week that has just passed. Enable us to overcome the adversities of the week before us. And all we do, I would ask that you direct us to fulfilling your purposes for our lives. Now bless the preaching of your word. May it be clear and fully consistent with your perfect word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. encourage you, if you haven't already, if you have a Bible, to turn to Psalm 139 so you can reference this great psalm as we look at it together. David was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was a musician. He was a writer of poetry. He was not a scientist. Yet Psalm 139 helps us gives us an opportunity to really delve into some realms of science, psychology, embryology, even mental illness. And I would say that David's credentials by our standards today, killing bears and fending off lions, doesn't exactly set you up to address those subjects in our world today. So it's important as we come to God's word and we listen to a psalm some of us have heard For many years in love, we remind ourselves the authority behind it. We remind ourselves that Jesus affirmed all the Old Testament scriptures, telling us not even an eye would lose track in scriptures. That Paul would say to the Romans, the Jews had the very words of God in Romans 3. And of course, what he wrote to his dear friend, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. So as we look at this and and find that it really speaks to some areas, really of science, and its impact on our lives, let us remind ourselves, it's God speaking. Not just a shepherd, not just a warrior, not just a poet. It is the very words of God that Psalm 139 brings to us. This psalm is really a great teaching of God's nearness to you. His awareness of all that you're up to. 
he's going to teach on just when God got involved in your life. The planning stage began before eternity passed. After all, your name was written in his book if you were in Christ before eternity passed. But his actual work getting started on you, perhaps I need to remind you, it started in the very first minutes and hours of your life. And Psalm 139 will give us much evidence of that. So I think when it comes to the details of your life, it's not the devil that's in the details, it's the divine that's in the details. Always has, always is today, and will continue to be. It couldn't start any better than the verse 1, you have searched me and have known me. It sets the tone for the, the psalm that's before us. Psalm 139 uses the word search three different times. Two, by, by God saying, I, I have searched you. And we'll see at the end a plea from David to continue to be searched. But to, the, the Hebrew word search means to probe, to explore, to, to study. It's fascinating to me that the Lord God, the omniscient, the all-knowing one, would say, I'm studying you. Nancy, he's studying you. It's fascinating to me that he would want to communicate those terms to us. That the all-knowing is still about searching us and knowing us. Now, we might get the 30,000 view from an airplane. It's fun to look down. I sometimes do that and I think, gosh, 120 years ago, no one had ever had this view. And we just look out and we're just... Just take it in stride if we've been on an airplane of all that's below us, all of humanity that's below us. So I would remind you, if you're flying over a city the next time you're on a plane and you see an apartment building, it doesn't matter how high it is. It might be 40 stories in some places and in, in some of our major cities. God knows every single person's story that's on every single floor in that condo building, that apartment building, that hotel. You're flying over some, some more rural setting where the, the farmhouses are spread out. God knows the story of every farmer that's in a pig pen and every kid that's in a playpen that's underneath you on those rural settings, those plains. He is aware of every detail that is underneath you as you look out from that site. Think about a calendar. Open up a 2024 calendar. It doesn't matter that over 90% of it hasn't happened yet. God knows the first three weeks of 2024 better than any of us. And he knows all just as much of what remains in the next 49 weeks of this year. And that includes the details of your life. The details that we see in verses 2 to 4 include what you're up to, what you're thinking, and what you're going to say. Look at these words that Wendy already has drawn our attention to. Verses 2 to 4. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God says, I'm familiar with all of your doings. Look at the list of things. Sitting down, rising up, lying down, my paths, all my ways. 
There's nothing that you're up to, that you're doing, or have ever done, he's not familiar with. All your ways. He's familiar with all your thinking. He discerns, verse 2 says, he discerns your thoughts from afar. I don't know if he intends to say, from heaven's throne room, I am discerning, I'm aware of what you're thinking here in Centennial, Colorado right now. Or does he discern them from afar that he remembers what you were thinking when you were four? Or he's going to know what you're thinking if you make it to 97. He already knows those things. And the words that you've not yet spoken, it's amazing to think he knows the first thing you're going to say after this service is over. Hopefully it's not. I got some good sleep. He knows all you're going to say this afternoon, this week, before it's on your tongue. He's familiar with all your doings, your thinkings, all your talkings. That's great stuff. But I think David would say, hold on, it gets even better in verse 5. Listen to what he says in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I credit my friend Summer for, as we were talking about this at our home group just the other day, for just painting an image as we were talking together as a group about this. And, and she says, you know, what comes to my mind is, is, a, is, is a mom looking after a, a toddler. You know, one that's walking well enough, you're not worried about them stumbling. Well, they don't know enough about all the dangers that are around. Maybe picture that toddler, you're taking them and you're at a shopping mall with an escalator, with, with some of the sharp edges in the furniture store. Can you picture a parent, a mom or a dad, maybe an aunt or an uncle, looking after that child, in a sense, wanting them to explore? We all enjoy when we see a young one exploring, and we're not trying to keep them from, from moving about. We want them to keep learning how to walk and run. So we're near, and maybe just a hand on the back to help steer when they're getting close to the edge of that furniture or getting close to the escalator and turning them around when they're not ready to go down that yet. David paints this great picture of, his, of God's hand upon us. Maybe it's a hand that you picture of reassurance. I'm, I'm near. Maybe it's a hand that encourages to move forward on something you need to make a decision about. Maybe an apology you need to offer. Maybe something you just need to get done, need to get after it. Maybe it's a hand that just gently nudges you one way or the other on a key decision that's ahead. Or maybe something you're about to say and the nudge is just from the Spirit, just listen a little longer. All to be in that kind of communication with the Creator God, His hand upon you. No surprise that the next verse David would say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I love that he chose the word wonderful. It'd be so easy for him to say, I'm really impressed with everything I've said so far. <laughs> I'm just intrigued. God's like, you know, the best person ever with trivia and, and, and all the things that are going on. Wow, pretty cool, smart guy. Sit next to him on the next test for political science. It's 
so much more than that. It's not being impressed as much as enjoying that this is true. David finds one commentator says, fascination, not flight, thinking about how well God knows him. What does that mean? He finds an enjoyment of thinking about how near God is to him, how well God knows his thoughts, how well God knows what he's going to say and has said, how what is even is on is on his mind. And there's only one way that that happens fully in our lives. When, when we respond to that kind of, of, of awareness, that kind of instruction from God's word, there's only one way we can accept that and say, that is just wonderful. Instead of wanting to run from that knowledge, run from the God that knows us that's well. And I hope you know that is the gospel itself. The gospel itself that says, through Christ, we are made right at the cross when we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's what allows us to truly say these thoughts are so wonderful. But David goes on in verses 7 to 12. Check it out. I'm just going to read a verse or two at a time and, and make a comment or two. Because I know some of these are, are words and phrases and sentences you've, you've maybe read a number of times, but things that, that helped me as I was studying them again, I want to share with you. It begins in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The NIV Study Bible says, the whole creation offers no hiding place from God. When you know his love for you and his forgiveness for you, that is a wonderful thought. David continues, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, most commonly translated by the Hebrews, the grave. If I'm in the grave, you are there. Verses 9 and 10, If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Let me explain that a little bit. Truthfully, I think I've heard those that, that a number of times since I was a little guy, and I don't know if I had ever really gotten a grasp of just what David is poetically implying here. So let me ask you a question. Uh, what's the fastest thing you've seen go across the sky? I'll give you a hint. The answer is the same for all of us. But you say, hey, I saw, I saw this new Air Force jet. I don't know if anybody in this room has seen an Air Force jet go across the sky. I saw a rocket. That's even faster. Has anybody here ever seen the sun come up in the morning and the rays make their way from east to west? Now, if you're a teenager and you don't get up till 10 o'clock, I know you haven't seen that, but the rest of us have seen at some point the sun come up and seen the first rays travel across the sky from east to west as they come up. My study at home looks east, and I just see those first rays jet out if I'm up early at the desk. David pictures, here's what he's picturing. He's saying if, if when those first rays, the wings of the morning, come up, those rays that, that fly across the sky, if I were faster than them, or even just get to ride them across the sea, 
He's going to think the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Israel is. He's not thinking the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee. That's just a few miles across. He's picturing something going across the Mediterranean Sea. Those first rays. And he's, and he's essentially saying, if I were to mount those first rays of the sun and make it all the way across, he didn't know it was 2,500 miles, which it is, to the Rock of Gibraltar, all the way to the uttermost parts of the sea. He doesn't just say, God be close to me. God be just on my tail. He says, even there you lead me. God still beat him there. His presence, his ability to keep that hand on his life, to hem him in, to support him. God is there just, if not quicker than him. David had no idea how fast light was. What he was claiming, that, that God is as fast as the speed of light to keep up with him. The truth is, those first rays of sun, if they are, were to circle the earth, go around it seven and a half times in the first second. That's how fast light is. You who love physics know that. David had no idea what he was even proposing. But God's spirit confirmed, you still won't outrun the God who has his hand on you. He goes on to say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, in verse 11, and the light about me be night. Hold on to this next phrase. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Now darkness, you know, when you're a kid, you just tend to think of darkness. You think of the lights going out. I still chuckle at the, the time a few years ago I was preaching in the country of Myanmar and it was during the day but the lights uh, in this particular small church there was not much natural light I had barely gotten up to start preaching and I thought I was going to be good but the lights literally <clears throat> went out the electricity failed and I preached probably the second 95% of my sermon in the dark I could see the shadows out there and I thought, well, I think it went okay. I, I'm sure God is still here working. Until my teenage son Jackson came up and said, Dad, it's kind of hard enough sometimes to stay awake when you're preaching, but when the lights go out, I didn't have a chance. <laughs> you know, the lights can go out at night, and we can feel and wonder, is God near? The lights can go out on a thunderstorm when we're at home and we're scrambling for the candles. God is there in those instances when the physical light is dimmer. But, but it is so true that in, I'm sure, every language, certainly in the Hebrew language, just like in the English language, when we refer to darkness visiting our lives, most of the time we're not talking about, oh, the lights were out, let's go hit the breaker box. We're speaking to the trials and difficulties of life. I couldn't help but notice that in the, I think Nader has told us seven songs throughout the morning we've sung, the word darkness was in three of the seven songs. Just speaking to the realities of God's presence in those moments and the realities of life. Our God sees into the darkness. The darkness of dementia. The darkness of disability. The darkness of mental illness, whether it's ADHD in a little boy or whether it's schizophrenia coming on in someone's 20s, never to leave the rest of their life. 
God sees the darkness of the uncertainties ahead for you. The, the, the darkness of even the last week or two. He sees the darkness that you feel when you say, I'm feeling very alone these days. You might be a high schooler surrounded by a thousand people tomorrow and wonder if you have a single friend in the group. Could be the darkness of losing life's partner and you're still here. The darkness that you feel when singleness is perhaps getting the best of you. Even there, even in the darkness, it is not dark to you. God doesn't just see you. His hand is on you, hemming you in, in whatever darkness you have experienced or will experience. He now turns in verses 13 to 16 to, to reminding us that, that God is near, God is present. He's guiding you now. He's going to guide you this week. But, but this, this involvement of God's hands in your life began in the first minutes of your life. Scripture shows, uh, in, in various ways, just God's uh, heightened descriptions when, when he makes humanity. You think back to Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, God made a ton of stuff. And for the most part, the creation account says God spoke it into existence, and it was. But when he gets to describing Adam and Eve, he describes him forming it out of the dust, of breathing into Adam's nostrils, of, of taking the rib out of his side, sealing up the place with his own hands, and forming Eve. And when he gets to this section, there's probably no section of scripture that, that more clearly describes his handiwork within the womb of every single one of us. Let me read verses 12 to 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We draw your attention to a couple of key words, verse 12, when it says, you formed my inward parts. That's the English standard version. It's, it's a Hebrew word, kilya, that, that is really the language of an anatomist, not a poet. If you were to find this word in other places in the Old Testament, many of them would be in Leviticus. And, and the word is describing kidneys. But God did more than just form your kidneys. He, he, he formed all those internal organs. So we, we take it as one of those expressions where by saying he's, he's forming your kidneys, they, they would hear that as he's forming all those internal organs. When he says in verse 16, I find this just wonderful. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. The Hebrew would often refer to something with that word golem as a wrapped, unformed mass of something. Again, David probably knew nothing of anatomy. He didn't have 
pictures of, of sophisticated ultrasounds that show someone er, in early stages of life. Nowadays, we even have these, these images from, from surgeries and, and pictures of what is happening in utero in the earliest weeks and months, these intricate pictures. And we know and can picture that unformed substance as, as being folded over itself in process of being formed. So much so that, that uh, William MacDonald can comment in, on this, saying the word means something like being rolled or wrapped together. Just what images of an embryo today show, growing and developing. And then I want to draw your attention to just the actions that, that appear in these verses, 13 to 16. The actions of describing life in the womb, where he says, I formed, I knitted together. You're wonderfully made. You're made in secret. Woven in the depths. All of these confirm his involvement from the earliest days in the womb. Now I went to, we used to call it, the other medical school in town. Hopkins, Johns Hopkins was across town and of course had a world-renowned reputation. So in where I was at University of Maryland, we referred to that as the other medical school. Didn't want to name them out of, of course, jealousy. But anyway, Johns Hopkins Medicine is world-renowned with this, with its, its uh, Wilmer Eye Center and just its heritage of medical science. Listen to what I found on hopkinsmedicine.org, just describing a few things of what's happening by the end of the first month, the second month, and the third month of pregnancy. End of the first month, I quote exactly from Hopkins Medicine. All major systems and organs begin to form. The heart is beating. Four weeks in. End of the second month, I quote verbatim. The embryo is taking on human shape. The bones begin to develop. The fetus is inch or an inch and a half long. All major organs and systems have been formed. End of three months, I quote exactly, fingernails and toenails appear. Eyelids are formed. The arms and legs are fully formed. In that first trimester of pregnancy, what is happening is God is a creative artist. You might picture him as, as, as having the canvas of your life before him. The end of a month, and two months, and three months, the, the work is already there on the canvas. Maybe you picture God as a potter. You, you are the clay he's forming. The end of three months, the clay is taking shape, and he has been at the wheel for three months. Maybe you picture him as a weaver, someone knitting together yarn. The end of one month, the end of eight weeks, the end of three months, that weaver already has something to show for his work, and he's been at the weaving, at the knitting for three months, at the end of three months. Finally, when I look at verse 18, look at the end of verse 18, it says, I awake and I am still with you. One commentator says, I believe David is referring to the moment of his birth here. He speaks of his birth as an awakening, just as we might say, speak of birth as seeing the first light of day. 
And the context certainly supports that when he says in verse 18, when I awake, I'm still with you. You know, he's not been talking about journeying in the Judean wilderness or running away from Saul. His, the context here is, is his life and his creator forming him in the womb. Not his adult life, not his running about and waking up and saying, God is still with me, hope it's going to be a good week. The context would suggest he's poetically saying, when I finally awake to this world that I'm going to be living in, you're still there. As if to say, birth is not the start of life. Birth is the continuation of a work that he began in the first seconds of being conceived. When I awake, you're still there when I'm born. God's hand has always been with you. Think of just how the word hands have been repeatedly shown in here. Verse 5, as we talked about, you lay your hand upon me. In all that I'm doing and thinking and talking, your hand has been upon me. In verse 10, when David said, "If, if I fly across the sky at the speed of light, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Verse 13 and verse 15. Your hands have knitted me in my mother's womb. In verse 15, I was made in the the secret, intricately woven. We are God's hands-on handiwork. What a great thought that his hand has always been on us. But these final verses are... If there was ever an abrupt change in a psalm, I think we could say it doesn't get more abrupt than the cold, the, the warm fuzzies of, of being and thinking about God's involvement in our lives from the very start. All these wonderful thoughts. And he turns abruptly and says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Where did that come from? In fact, I would argue that that when you have dealt with this passage, if you've studied it in a Bible study, studied in a devotional, that there's plenty of content on the first 18 verses. And you get to this, and somehow there's just not enough room on the page. or not enough time in the Bible study to get to these troubling kind of words. What, What do I do with these words here? At the end of verse 19, it's clear that what's troubling David in particular is what he calls men of blood, those that that take the lifeblood from someone else. You know, the reality is there are figures in history, even the last century, that we could say have taken much blood in positions of of dictatorships, positions of war that have, have shed much blood. David, I think it's appropriate to, to, to consider not just what came to his mind of people that seem to not be valuing life, but what's current in our own age. You know, the disregard for life in, in places in the world where, where children are made warriors at a young age. I, I think, of course, of, of places maybe going to the Netherlands where, where physician-assisted suicide for those who... who have a sense of obligation to die when they get old enough and aren't contributing to society. And the world around, and obviously including our own country, just with the issue of of abortion. And there's so many ways 
that culture as well as individuals contribute to that. So I have to ask the question, what do we do? Because that's kind of what David is in the end saying. Lord, after thinking so much about how well you know us, your involvement in life, holding up not just the value of each and every human life, but, but promoting its sanctity, what do we do when we see it torn apart, when we see it violated, when we see marches of those that are making statements and carrying out a way of thinking that, that just can't be consistent with the sanctity of life? Well, I think we try to make sure that we are constantly in a place where we uphold the clear truths of Scripture and the clear character of the Lord Jesus that is, is our Savior. I don't think he would have us do anything else. Sometimes I think it's a little easier than other times to, to have the, that part of compassion, that part of understanding well up within us. I was reading some chapters of all things from a book by a, a Baylor University professor, Natalie Carnes, called Motherhood. She wrote the book just in recent years. And she describes a story of a mother who, who attended a mother's group. And, and she was just guilt-ridden of something that had happened just a few days before. This particular mother, as she shared, they knew her to be one that didn't have much support in her life for this baby that was seemingly crying all the time. Uh, this mother basically described her life in, for the last few weeks as being long days and very short nights. And her sleep deprivation and the stresses of that just had her in a place where, where she just didn't know if she could continue to do it. As she's wrestling with these thoughts, she shared with this group of moms that, that, that just a few nights before she had stumbled into her baby's room crying again. And she just is there stupefied, just not even able to think straight. And as she literally held her baby, she confessed to the friends around her. An, an image, a, a vision came to mind of me throwing my baby through the bedroom window that was just nearby, the glass shattering. It, it almost, in her sleep-deprived state, seemed so real to her that she had to look down and make sure her baby was there, that it hadn't happened. And it, and, and it scared her so much that she said, the only thing I knew to do, to do was to ride the public transportation in my town, in my city, all night. So I was accountable to at least someone watching, even if it was just the bus driver, that I wouldn't act on what had just terrified me a few hours before. She and her baby made it through that night. But the reality is, that doesn't happen all the time, especially with the unborn, especially with those late in life feeling an obligation, perhaps, to die and wondering, do I need to take the steps to do that? In our society, in many ways, uh, is, is against the sanctity of life. I think of just... Not just what happens with abortion, but what happens also when someone is, is getting tested, feels an obligation even to have genetic testing or an amnio that can show whether they have downs or something. And the assumption is, 
if that's the case, you have an obligation to not bring that child into this world. One of the things that's so clear in the scriptures is both the image of God is not parceled out to some and not to others. And also, the handiwork of God. His, his, his fashioning and wonderfully making is, is not limited to those of you that just fit some ideal stereotype of what our skin-deep world says is acceptable. I guess I'm comfortable leaving a sermon without a knit, a nice knit bow on it. There's much that is uplifting and encouraging in the message of Psalm 139. But I have to put together these, these two thoughts that David has as we finish. In verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. In, in his, his raw emotion, he cannot, he cannot see how upholding the sanctity the beauty of life of the Creator. He cannot uphold of what he sees and has experienced in his world. And there should be some aspect that all of us feel that, that, that weight, that, uh, that angst, maybe even that righteous anger. But notice that David doesn't stop there, as if he's arrived at the right place. He ends this psalm in verses 23 and 24, asking that the searching God continue to search him. Verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. On the tail of of, of seeing what is wrong in his world as it relates to the sanctity of life. I think he's setting a good example for us, a God-ordained example, that we seek to ask the question, Lord, make so very clear to me your stance on life, and also make clear to me what within me needs refinement, what in, in, inside of me goes from righteous, is not righteous anger, and is displeasing, and, and guide me in the right paths in my world as to how I stand for the sanctity of life in this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of this psalm as well as the challenge it offers us. And I pray, Lord, that Scripture and your Holy Spirit's refining of our motives, our perspectives, and our actions would be coupled together, we cannot address the beauty as, as well as the difficulty of this psalm without your clear guidance and work in our lives. And so we pray for that. We pray for the week ahead. Would you go before us that we would honor you in all that we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen.